Hello and welcome to the Kick-Sass Podcast. I'm your host, John O'Landon, and in this podcast, we share excerpts from live in-person SaaS growth events that I run in my hometown of Toronto, Canada. A little about me, I'm the founder and CEO of Hubly, a B2B SaaS company that helps private schools find new families to enroll and engages them throughout the entire enrollment journey. Essentially, it's like HubSpot, but for private schools. This episode is a recording from a recent panel discussion that I hosted and moderated at the Hubly head office here in Toronto on the topic of how to pitch a SaaS company to investors. The panel included two major influencers in the SaaS world uh, here in Toronto. One is Jonah Medanik, founder of Limelight Platform and the managing director of the Accelerprise Accelerator program here in Toronto. And the other is Mikhail Dia, founder of and CEO of Funalytics.io, uh, also happens to be one of my personal favorite marketing tech tools. This panel discussion offers many great takeaways for anyone who has founded or is leading a SaaS business and needs to raise early stage capital. We're going to jump right into this episode, and I hope you enjoy the format and content we go through here, and I look forward to sharing future episodes with you from these live SaaS growth workshops. First, cool. Uh, my name is Mikel Dia. I am the founder and CEO of Funnelytics. And uh, basically, uh, pretty simple, right? I, I took the word funnel, I took the word analytics, and I smashed them together, and that became the name of my company. So we are a funnel analytics company. We help you understand what's working and what's not working with your marketing funnels. Uh, look at your ads, your, your emails, the flow of your traffic. Uh, we show you what's making you money and what's not making you money. Uh, we've launched in 24 months ago. Uh, we scaled to just over 3.5 million in those past 24 months bootstrapped. We were just closing our first round of funding. And yeah, that's in short. I've raised some money in, in the UK and stuff like that, so we'll talk about that as well. Can everyone hear me okay? Yes. No, no, you got, you got, it, you got to be on the mic because it's recording. Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> Hello. Where'd you go? Hi. Uh, so I'm Jonah. Uh, dual role, although most of my time I actually spent on the, the evil side of the table. So uh, most recently I was the founder and CEO of Limelight. Limelight's an offline marketing platform. So basically taking all the fun tools digital marketers had online and bring them offline for big Fortune 5000 so they could evaluate things like their events, their sponsorships, their consumer shows. So if you've ever walked through Scotia Center and anyone's ever stopped you with an iPad, uh, I apologize in advance. That was likely us. So SaaS platform, uh, we've been around for five-ish years, raised low eight figures of venture both here and in the US. Uh, that was my day job. And now I've pivoted to uh, much more of the investment side. So I'm the managing director today of Accelerprise. We're out of New York and San Francisco. We're both a SaaS-only accelerator. So we take companies that have a product in market, maybe a few customers, maybe not, and give them some capital and a little bit of, of uh, lessons around the potholes we all stepped in. Um, and when I say we, I mean myself and then a group of operators that have built some really amazing businesses like Salesforce and Gainsight. And, uh, and then we've got a seed fund as well. Okay, awesome. So, um, so I'm gonna ask questions and you know, I'd love to hear uh, we'd all love to hear what both of you think on, on all the questions. The first question is like when, when you go out raising money, 
Um, how do you how do you select the the investors that you want to go after? Like, what's what's your criteria um, when you're when you're out looking? And because I know, like, I'm I'm in the process of doing this, trying to find the right investors. And and what what do you do when when you're building that list that you want to go after? What how, how do you approach that? Uh, so you know, there's a couple things. So first of all. You, you'd like ideally to find someone that is value add. You know, the joke is when we read all this stuff online as Canadians, everyone's like, capital is everywhere. And as a Canadian, you're like, where's this everywhere you keep talking about? Uh, it turns out it's like a six hour flight. Um, so capital isn't everywhere. Um, so, you know, there's definitely an element to, if you're doing it in Canada, it's like, who's stage appropriate, who, who's actually doing this. And uh, in the initial stages, that is still a tough market here in Canada. Um, so non-traditional forms of capital outside the angel groups, which you know I've definitely got a view on, um, is, is one of the things I looked for. So whether that's family offices, high net worths, and I'd started there with influencers in MySpace. Um, people that knew marketing pretty intimately and would understand the problem and had been really successful in that space. So that was, you know, and then once you get to real traction and you feel comfortable going to, to venture, if you've got a venture appropriate business, I've also built and scaled businesses that weren't venture appropriate, service businesses, and, you know, built them to millions and millions of dollars of annual revenue. And, you know, those, those were businesses that weren't venture appropriate. So once I understood that Limelight was a venture appropriate business with a very large market, uh, it was finding partners inside firms who I knew would be able to be value add. And both in being value add, I knew that that, that was a worthwhile endeavor, but also I knew that they'd understand the problem and deeply understand the problem, which definitely increased my likelihood. So that was how I approached it. Yeah, I approached it slightly differently. Um, I, I kind of looked at it as, uh, okay, first and foremost, I know that you have where I'm at, right? I'm, I'm at a seed stage, so I've got to look for, for funds and investors that will invest at the seed stage. But then from there, I kind of went down the like spray and pray road, right? Just kind of like, let's just hit them all up. Let's just, you know, it's it's a funnel at the end of the day. How many meetings can I set up? and but then what you start to realize uh, is that a lot of them don't actually fit with your type of business, right? So uh, I, I got a lot of people who came and are like, we don't invest in MarTech. And it's like, okay, fine. And, you know, so you kind of start to find your, your core niche of the type of investors that will fit. But the problem is if you start with like trying to narrow that down first, you don't really know. It's, it's, it, it's kind of like marketing on that front like you can't really just be like I know for a fact that this is my my buyer when you're just starting like you have to open up the funnel a little bit um, and then now you start getting some traction you you, you want to build that momentum that's that's what I found from my end okay cool um, and uh, when you know when you've had your successful raise uh, what, what do you think the the investors were were looking for like what? What was it about you or, or your co-founder um, that that you know made them say this? You know, this is somebody I'm going to get behind. And is that something that is? Do you think is sort of consistent like that? You know, or is that really dependent just on the different investors? Well, now that I'm on the uh, other side of the table and I get into the secret meetings, now I've had, now that I'm on the other side of the table, it, it is 
pretty consistent. So the first is founder market fit. So not just are you, are you solid, but why are you the person to solve this problem? So as an example, myself and Michael both have marketing backgrounds. So if I walked into someone and be like, this is my DevOps platform. They'd be like, but you don't know anything about DevOps. But this is my, so you know, so founder market fit is definitely a thing. Um, so that's definitely one. The other is, you know, is this someone I'd work for or is this someone that I could conceivably see a younger version of myself working for is very much one. Uh, and then, you know, on top of the founder market fit and the this is, is this someone I can work for, just, you know, where's their curiosity? So what is it that they're interested in? What is the vision? Um, a lot of those things uh, definitely very much matter. And whether we like it or not right now, specifically in the Valley, what is hot to fundraise is um, people that have worked in venture-backed startups. And that's unfortunate because I'm not sure that I've seen any data that says that, that actually correlates to success, but it definitely correlates to success in fundraising. Um, so from my side, right, not, not looking at it at that end of the table, uh, but it, it still correlates, you have to, it's a story at the end of the day, right? People buy into the story. So uh, a, a quick example, like our, our story with our traction with Funnelytics and what we've been able to, to build is what people are buying into, right? They wanna see that journey. They wanna see what that story looks like. But I could just as easily have had a really great story as a founder who have gone and exited companies and had that background. And, and that's the story I tell, and this is the new startup that I have. And it may not have very much traction, but because I can share this story that you buy into, you'll buy into that, that product, right? That thing that I'm working on. So just always think about the story that you're, you're telling these investors. They gotta buy into it. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, a lot of people here, and when I say here, I mean Canada, get really tied into pitch decks, and um, it's, it's not about your pitch deck, it is about that narrative, that story. Yeah. So what's the story you have that you've got a vision to win some market? What's that unique market insight? And why are you the person to deliver that vision? Ultimately, and again, I'm talking about early stage, once you get it, start getting into you know, the $5 million plus checks and having been in those meetings, those be become very different conversations about like, what is $1 in sales and marketing equal? And what's your CAC and LTV? You know, that story is now a financial picture we're painting. But if you're in the kind of sub $4 million ARR stage, uh, it's, or it's actually sub $2 million ARR stage, it's very much why, what is your vision that you're selling what, why is it you that's selling it and what makes that a credible vision to sell? And if you need a pitch deck to do that, uh, you're, you're already lost. The last big round I closed, I literally walked in and they're like, do you want to put up a deck? And I was like, why? I do this like 70 hours a week. I don't need slides. So, I mean, and, and the idea is um, more around the, the vision, the narrative. Yeah, so just to touch on that with decks, um, it's funny because with with Mars, who's who's uh, you know, it's not necessarily fully closed, but there we're pitching to them, and we found that most decks are like twelve pages, right? Like twelve, they give you an average. This is what your deck should be, and it should create. This is the way you should tell your story to the the VCs. My deck is about forty slides, 
And when I present it, like they move, right? Like each slide is like, it, it's a story. I, I go through it and, and it takes me about 15 minutes, but it's 40 slides of like, when you're in there, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm captivated. And they're like, we've never seen somebody pitch that way, but like, yeah, it's cool, right? So don't be tied to, a, to that idea of like, I've got to tell my story this way, you know? As long as you hit on the main components that you have to, of course. Okay, and so uh, what's the uh, what's the biggest mistake you've made when pitching? Uh, I got thrown out of foundation capital. <laughs> that's that's a thing that happened. Um, geez, I wish there was one. I mean, I've had partners of billion dollar funds literally just pull out their phone in the middle of a meeting and just start texting, and like there was no one else there. It was just me and them. <laughs> So that was cool. So in case it wasn't clear where I was at, they did everything but call their assistant. Um, so I mean, look, I made a, I made a ton of mistakes. Um, I didn't do stage appropriate pitching. So if you're pre-seed, it's literally, it's all they care about is, is the market big? Are you good? And do you have an idea of how you're gonna get there? Everything else is, they know your product's shit. They know that the six people on your advisory board you've spoken to once a month, they're not stupid, they do this all day. So like, I didn't know that because I didn't know that. Um, and then, yeah, I mean the other ones is like not, not understanding who you're pitching to. I literally used to have two decks. I'd have one deck where everything was in USD and it would tell them how I was gonna get to $100 million in revenue in seven years. And then another deck that would tell the Canadian investors how I was gonna break even in four. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not. I'm literally not joking. I, I, I and I just feel like I switch. So you know, not understanding who you're pitching to. So if you're pitching to, uh, you look at a partner and you go, all right. Well, what have you invested in before? And what are the commonalities that I have between their latest greatest success? Because VCs, we're talking to brilliant people all day and we're pattern matching. So you know, I look at 500 companies a year and we invest in 20, so, and I don't know anything about most of the things that I'm investing in, so how do we pattern match? So we look at, okay, well these are the things that I normally see that are successful. We've got a founder who is either deeply technical or highly charismatic or has deep domain expertise, we look at. And so just not understanding reverse engineering it, and to Michael's point, it's a funnel. It's just a funnel. So, you know, you do your spray and pray, or however you do it, to figure out what your funnel is and then learn from that. The other thing I didn't do is I didn't keep an objection handling sheet. I get these objections and I didn't know to like write them all down and then make sure to introduce those objections early so that the things that like all of your businesses have structural flaws, mine do too. Of course they do. Every business has a structural flaw. You don't, congratulations, you're Tim Cook. Why are you here? But if you if you don't acknowledge that ahead of time, then it just it just becomes problematic. So uh, I literally run a program on mistakes I make. It, it takes 16 weeks, but those are some highlights. Uh, yeah, so to to just touch on, on that and iterate on that, um, 100% uh, going, I don't mean to kind of keep talking about this whole story, but it is about understanding your story and then who is the audience. And if you're at Pre-Seed, don't go and pitch them the, the CAC LTV. Like don't, don't try to pitch something to a Series A investor to a seed investor. You have to understand your audience and what they want to hear, right? So you got to pitch it that way. Uh, and then going back to the uh, objection handling. So as I was 
going through the rounds of, of pitching, I kept adding into my appendix of my of my already 40 page deck of like potential objections, right? So I had slides now that covered things that people came back to me and say, so how do you expect to get to $100 million? Okay, cool, now I have a slide that it's in the appendix, I won't necessarily cover it in my story, but if they ask that question, boom, I've got that slide, this is how we're gonna do it, right? And now it becomes just handling objections and then they're like, all right, well, I guess I, guess I gotta write you a check. Cool. So, uh, I mean, you touched on it, like the difference between Canadian investors and U.S. investors. I know that um, I've experienced that as well, where talking to an angel network and, you know, my deck said I'm looking for 600000 and they told me I should be asking for 300000 um, after looking at, I mean, like, I, I can't, I never understood what they base that on. And then, <coughs> and then, um, and then I took the same deck to the Valley because I heard, oh, they're more aggressive over there. And I got laughed at because I should have been asking for two million. So, like, what's why is it like this? And you know, what what have what have you seen? You know, as like, how would you describe the difference? Well, so it's like this because people are product of their environments, right? So we're all product of our environments. Uh, as I explained to my parents, nature and nurture, it's still your fault. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> so you know, we're all product of our environments, right? So the Silicon Valley is a product of their environment. And their environment says that two dudes in a garage can change the world. But in Canada, our environment says that mining, fin finance, and real estate is how you get rich. Well, mining is like, well, is there gold there? Are there trees there? Can I spit on the building? Where are your branches? So that's how everyone, that's how Canada makes its money. But Silicon Valley made its money betting on Moonshots. Yeah, we're gonna invent computing. Like, okay, what's that? It's like it's like an abacus, but with more silicon. Like, it's just what? So we're product of our environments, and that accounts for the difference, right? And if you look at the financial crash of 2008, and you look at how we were impacted as economies, you know, the U.S. made more on all these structured products than we did during the roaring, whatever we're calling that decade, and we made a lot less. But they experienced a near depression and we just didn't because we did not, we weren't there for the party. And if you look at the returns of venture funds and the way they behave here, the venture funds here lose less and make less because the risk capital here is less. And it's because the environment that they grew up in, we are in, is less risky. So there's less risk capital. And the risk capital that here is more risk adverse. So that is the primary difference to remember. In a US venture fund, if you go bankrupt, you go, cool, eight of 10. They literally don't care. I mean, they care, but it's part of their model. Even at seed stage or series A stage here for sure, they start to downside protect. You will see no downside protection amongst venture firms at those early stages. And speaking of someone from a US fund who's got both Canadian and US money in his company, it's a massive difference. The reason why I got thrown out of Foundation Capital is by Jonathan Ehrlich, who is a founding member of C100 and a great guy. And he was right, because I was showing him some small ball nonsense. And he's like, we have a billion dollars under management. If you can't return $500 million to the fund, why are you here? Because I was showing him like, oh, this is a guaranteed, and I was right. You know, we've got 31, we had a lot of Fortune 500s on platform, we were growing, it was gonna be fine, we had no churn. 
but uh, yeah, so that's the primary difference you need to understand is that the risk tolerance is dramatically different and it's dramatically different because of the environments people grew up in and also, you know, if you take out Shopify, Michael Hyatt had the largest tech exit in Canada pre-2016, 459 million. That wouldn't be in the top 100 US tech exits. So the highs are more high and the lows are more low in the US and that's how it's built. So if you don't understand where people are coming from and align yourself with your investors around timeline, what they are looking for, et cetera. So a lot of you at early stage are like, why can't I raise money in Canada? The Canadian risk capital is orders of magnitude less risky, which is why they invest later at lower terms. And I actually think it hurts our innovation economy, but that's a whole other talk. Yeah, so I've never raised money in the US, so that was extremely insightful. Um, I have raised money in the UK, and their risk tolerance is even lower than Canada. Um, so that is... That interesting, uh, especially when it comes to tech and when it comes to startups. Uh, we've raised about 650,000 pounds for a previous business. Uh, we also did crowdfunding, which was interesting. Um, if we want to go into that life cycle of trying to raise money from people and the masses. Uh, but yeah, in, in terms of, you know, from what I've seen in, in terms of Canada, I think yeah, it, you're right. It's it's just that l risk tolerance at the end of the day. But that being said, you also have to be careful of valuations, right? Like valuations can also kill you. And, and having too high of a valuation and somebody putting in a lot of money, it sounds great. But if you don't match that valuation in the next few years or when you run out of money, you're screwed. You, you got to go a down round and things start getting iffy. So you, you got to keep that in mind, too, I would say. I used to live in London, and I had a, a startup in the UK, uh, so I raised money over there. Yeah. Cool. And um, changing gears a little bit, um, uh, because do you have any kids? I do. You do? One. One. One, one three and a half year old. Three and a half year old, right. Joanna, you've got two. Uh, I've got two. So. Um, Almost. She's on the way. Oh, right. 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 August. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. one plus one is really three in this case. <laughs> yeah. So, so talk about how you balance life with the startup, you know, experience, the, the ups and downs, the pressure, and, uh, and then you go home. So, um, and the honest truth is you, you can't effectively, and by that I mean something's got to give. Like you're a fixed resource. Your time, energy, attention, love, patience is a fixed resource. So the question is then when, where do you spend it? And my kids are non-negotiable. I'm home for dinner, as these guys will tell you, most nights. And these guys will also tell you it's going to be unlikely that anyone's going to outwork me. So what gives? And the answer is pretty much everything else. So, you know, I run a company and I, I'd like to think I'm a really good present parent because that is true, but I don't, I don't do a whole hell of a lot else when I'm in startup mode because it's really, 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 really difficult to do that. And I, I think that, you know, we can talk about, you know, work-life balance and all that good stuff, but the bottom line is being a founder is as hard a job as I know what it is. And speaking as a VC, by the way, VC, much easier, much easier. And when these 
when these assholes tell you otherwise, they're lying. <laughs> it's much easier. It's orders of magnitude easier. Uh, a founder is about as hard a job as you can ever have because a SaaS founder, well, you need to be good at sales, marketing, customer success, finance, product, dev, fundraising, investor relations. Oh, and there's six of, like, it's an impossible task. Oh, and yeah, you have no money and you're going to take over the world. Like, it's an, it's an impossible task. So uh, in doing that, y you know, you just got to decide where my red lines are. My red lines are between 5.30 and 7.30. I'm at home and, you know, I'm at home and I'm not answering anything. And then on the weekends between, you know, Saturday at 9 a.m. and Sunday at 7 p.m., I'm just, I'm not available. But that does mean I, you know, I've made a lot of associated sacrifices. And I, I think that, I guess if we call that balance, that's fine. But it's really difficult to pretend that it's anything other than that. Yeah, work-life balance is pure bullshit. I, I don't. I don't agree. I don't think I agree with with John. At the end of the day, there's only one thing that exists. It's it's life, and you choose how you live your life. There's no, well, this part of my life is work, and this part of my life is home. It's no. So you got 24 hours in a day, and you choose how you spread out your day, right? Uh, Jonah says that okay, at 7:30 he's at home and he's with his kids, and then he goes to bed, and then at 5:30 he decides to to go and do work and. Basically, that leaves everything else out, right? So you have to decide what are your priorities and how do you want to live your life? I don't, uh, I, I'm at home every single day as well. By latest, I'll leave the office at 6.30. Uh, I try to put my, put Isabel to bed. It should, you know, I tr try to get her to bed at 7.30, but she keeps going to bed at 8.30. Uh, but anyways, yeah, so, I, you know, I put, we br put her to bed. Uh, I spend time with my wife. We have dinner. Uh, I'll, try to chill out a little bit before watch a Raptors game. Like I'm a massive NBA nerd, so I'll watch the Raptors game, usually check some emails or do some stuff on the side, hit, go to bed, and then I work. I try to get up and go to the gym, but like, it's just your life. You just choose how you wanna live your life and, and realize that if you're gonna start a business, you've gotta focus on it. Like, yeah. That's what it comes down to. And, and the other thing is, and you know, you hear this a lot, and I used to think it was a cliche until I was in that spot. It does teach you the power of no. I just say no to most things. And everything like, and you know, respectfully, again today, it's like be here at 6.30. It's like, but I'm not speaking until seven. <laughs> so I will be here at 6.55 and it will be fine <laughs> because I don't have 25 minutes to just be here on time. Um, and so you just learn the power of no uh, because you start to understand that Actually, where you're paying for that yes, is you're paying for that yes for the gym time or for whatever time you have for yourself. And so, you know, one of the things I talk to my, my team about a lot is you wake up every morning and you have an impossible task with more things than any one person could possibly achieve. So actually what your job is in the morning before you start your day is to decide what to say no to. Realize too that um the road has been painted before you, right? Like that's why you join Accelerprise, right? You, you, because there's mentors who can kind of guide you and, and they've got arrows in their back. So like pay for that. Like I, I've spent more than way more on like my entrepreneurial education than I ever have with my university education. And, and I have two master's degrees, which is kind of ridiculous, but 
I've spent way more money on, on mentors because like, it is an impossible task. We have to put on all of these hats and try to manage all of these things. But like, I don't know about you guys, but I, 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 don't, I didn't know all of these things. So I'm going to pay somebody who's done this before. Still, still don't. Exactly. Still don't. Right. And it's like every, every time you think you've solved something, it's like, no, sorry, you're, you're, it's a new challenge and it's a new challenge and it just keeps going. So like, if you don't know much about marketing, hire a mentor or hire somebody smarter than you who can also take that on. But think about that, right? It's like the path has been paved before. So find somebody who can help you weed through the, the, the bushes in a sense. Okay, so obviously there's been a lot of advice that you guys are given, and, and Joan, I know you spend a lot of time giving a lot of start, you know, a lot of founders advice. Um, what do you think is is the really the most important thing for let's unless you know just to be specific about companies, uh, early stage companies, um, and you know here in Toronto, um, SaaS, you know what's what's the most important piece of advice? That that you know, or what's the thing that you you'd say the most the most commonly? Uh, at very early stage, it's very much make sure you're out there talking to customers with an open mind and an open heart, and not trying to prove your thesis. Um, because I think that a lot of time, effort, and everything else is spent uh, trying to push a rock uphill. And as founders, y you are right about the problem you're solving for sure. There's no way you spent like 10 years in an industry and saw this problem and lived it every day and are wrong about the problem. And you're likely not wrong about the thesis about your solution. But it's quite possible, and in fact, it's statistically probable that you're wrong about the first iteration of your solution and the second iteration of your solution. And so I see companies go away when it's like, but that's clearly a problem and everyone agrees. And that's clearly a very smart person who's a good founder. And so I guess my advice is have the courage to be wrong and have the courage to be wrong publicly and have the courage to steer those conversations to a place where you get to be wrong. Um, I've actually derived the most value in my life from saying I don't know. And you literally heard me interrupt, Michael, apologies by saying I still don't. Um, and despite the fact that, you know, I give advice for a living now, um, I think that advice is powerful for the simple reason that I know that I don't know. Um, and I think that that is my advice at early stage. Like, get out there, don't try and prove yourself right. Try and prove yourself wrong. Listen to your customers, listen to your prospects. You're definitely right about the problem you're solving. There's no way you put it all on the line to solve a fake problem. You're, you, you just didn't. There's no way your thesis is like way wrong. There's, it's just not. It's very likely that what you built is wrong. Find out. Um, uh, show of hands, who here is like pre-revenue? Okay, a few. Who's here is like sub 500,000? Sub a million? Okay, so uh, everyone else is over a million? Or not has a startup? Okay. Uh, so <clears throat> pre-revenue. Who wants a million? Yeah. Uh, my advice for if you're pre-revenue, 
you have to talk to your customers. You have to roll up your sleeves and make your first like major sales, right? Because you do not know how to position your product. You have the solution in your head. You think it's the greatest thing in the world. You've, you've thought about it, but like, doesn't mean that somebody else understands it. So you've got to roll up your sleeves and you've got to do the work and, and go and make those sales. That's what, like, you have to prove the concept to yourself. But at the same time, do it with an open mind, as Jonah said, because how you think the product is supposed to be pitched or, or supposed to be put out there is most likely incorrect, right? And you have to have that open mind as to what is the feedback. But you've got to figure out how to generate those sales and you got to do that your, yourself. Once you get to about the 200, you know, thousand, I would say, mark, it means that you've got some sort of proof of concept. Like, I know how to position this thing to generate revenue, right? Or, or to get somebody to pull out their credit card and give me money for it. So now I've got to find a system to attract that same buyer. That's how I think about it. So now I've got to figure out what is it that I'm going to do in order to bring that same buyer to me in, a, in an automated way, whether it's a, a marketing funnel or it's your sales cycle. Usually it's always a funnel, but whether it's offline, online, you know, irrelevant. But now you've got to find a way to attract that buyer. Once you get past a million, now it becomes different types of problems. Of course, it's always a funnel. It's always, it's always, always a, a funnel. funnel. Everything is a funnel. AKA funnelytics. Um, you know, uh, it, but at the end of the day, um, once you get to I, around that million dollar mark, that's when like operations start to really be the, the issue, right? And I mean, it, it happens earlier than that, but that's how I like to think about it. So my advice is if you're pre-revenue or sub 200, roll up your sleeves, do the work, focus on sales, like focus on figuring out that fit. If you're at that next level, figure out how am I gonna get that customer to come to me? How, how can I create a system to make that happen? And then figure out like, okay, how do I structure my team? Who do I need? Who do I need to replace myself with, et cetera? That's my advice. Okay, well, um, I've exhausted all my questions. So thanks, guys. Um, and what I'll do is uh, we'll pass the mic around. Um, Margie, are you, you up for that? Yeah. Okay, and, uh, and you guys can start asking your questions. All right. Okay, guys, so um, the, Q the rule for the Q&A is that you raise your hand if you have a question, and then uh, you only ask one question to allow everyone, well, as many people as possible to ask, because we only have about like 15, 20 minutes for the Q&A. So who wants to ask a question first? All right. And just make sure you talk into the mic because uh, go ahead and Oh yeah, it's being recorded. So be careful with the question you ask. <laughs> hey guys, thank you. That was very good. Um, question for both of you, slower growth with bootstrapping or faster growth raising money? Why did you go about, I mean, you're doing a healthy ARR. Why are you thinking of raising money at this stage? And you've been on both sides of the table, so. Yeah, so um, it really depends on a couple of things, right? First and foremost, and I, I, I can't stress this enough, there's no one path. You don't need to get on what I call the alphabet ladder. It's not better. Most of those companies that you see with Crunchbase announcements actually return the founder nothing. I was on the, f I was on the exec team of a company that raised $70 million. The founders got they were literally in a TV, uh, sorry, in a magazine shoot 
for Forbes for top three under 30 on like a wet tarmac next to a private jet. They got not $1 from that startup. We're the first major esports platform. I literally built the betting layer into Madden and NHL. They got nothing. So, A, what do you, what do you want? What do you want? Most of the wealthy people I know did not get venture capital. Most of the wealthy people that I know run good businesses with 25 people that they like that they, and they make a healthy profit and then they go home to the, and it's not that, you know. So then the question becomes, once you figure out what you want, what will your actual business sustain? I always say manage the business you have, not the business you want. Lots of people try and turn something that's good into something else. You see that actually a lot in second generations when they inherit a parent business. Like, what we need to do is franchise this. And it's like, actually, what you needed to do was continue to run the successful thing that's been there for 30 years. So if you manage the business you have, not the business you want, right? So that means, again, having the courage to be wrong. Most businesses are not 100 million ARR businesses. By definition, most businesses are not going to be publicly traded. And as much as it's like, well, if you get five, you can get 100, that's actually not true. It's, it's, of course, nonsense. So you have to be very honest about what the market's telling you. If you can't generate a ton of demand, that's the market telling you something. Doesn't mean you can't be very successful. I would say that the easiest time I ever had was running a $5 million a year business where I had no investors and I could do whatever I want. I used to spend, I used to take off February, like the whole month. I just like, I'm, February's terrible, I'm going somewhere else. Um, but I knew for Limelight, if I wanted to take over and win a market, which I did, that the comparative advantage I generated wasn't gonna last very long and it was gonna be a land grab. And the only way to finance that J-curve plus product development was gonna be venture capital. So like, be very honest with yourself, be very honest with, and also what are you capable of? The reason why I'm no longer the CEO of Limelight is I looked at my board, which I still control, and I said, if we were hiring for CEO today, would we hire me? And they're like, well, and I'm like, no, you wouldn't. Of course you wouldn't. If I applied for this job, you would not hire me. I was the best person to get us here. That's why we're here. But you, of course you wouldn't hire me. There's nothing in my resume that says I should be a scale CEO. Like, you could learn to do it. I'm like, yeah, I could learn to do a lot of, but like, there's lots of people that have. So just again, honesty, courage, vulnerability, um, I think that that is how you get to the place that's good for you, and I don't think anyone but you can tell you what that is. Yeah, I mean, I can't really top that. That was a pretty, pretty very good answer. So, uh, what he said. <laughs> All right. Um, who else want to ask a question? All right. Thank you. Okay, yeah, that was an awesome talk, thank you. Um, we talk at Accelerprise a lot about wow moments when you're pitching to customers, um, and over time, understand how to achieve that and how to leverage that. I can only imagine that from a high level, it's a very similar concept when you're pitching to investors, but how did you find success in, in getting them to start nodding their head and smiling and achieving that wow moment pitching to investors? Um, for me, uh, it really comes down to yeah, I mean, it, it, it wasn't really that hard to kind of give them the wow moment when I spent the first 24 months, you know, 
focusing on on what I said with those three steps, and and we had a hundred thousand users in twenty four months and three point five million dollars in revenue, uh, that kind of was the wow moment. It's like okay, let me listen to what this guy's got to say. Um, you've got to create that wow moment. You can't just be like, I have this idea, and because everybody has an idea. Like everybody can come here and, and share an idea. And it's like, your idea is not a wow moment, unless you're speaking. So an example, uh, when, we were, when we raised money in London, in the UK, we were running a uh, language-based business. And it was an app, basically Uber for language teachers and language learners. You could find language teachers on this app. Uh, and our first angel investor had just sold an English school in like a foreign country. And like for him, it was like, yes, this is wow, because like this is perfectly in line with what I just did. And therefore, like this is a solution. I can see it. Right. So it was that was a wow moment. But um, you have to create it. You have to figure out like what wow moment am I going to create to to and a lot of times it's traction. Yeah. So I, I Yes. So the wow moments are, are created. Now, sometimes they're created. So when you hear of like pre-revenue stealth raised, what that means is the person that raised that money, their wow moment was they had insane experience in the space and it's a universally understood to be really monetizable problem. So it's like we just wrote a deal. I don't know if we quote Oh, fuck it. Who cares? Um, we just wrote a deal pre-revenue at, at a very, very health, 12 million US valuation into a company that does, uh, does everyone know Zapier? Yeah. Zapier for IoT. Connects different integration layer for IoT. Because there's a million IoT systems, they don't talk, it's a clusterfuck. Zapier for IoT. He's like, Zapier for IoT. Everyone knows IoT. Everyone knows their fridge doesn't talk to their toaster. Whether or not your fridge needs to be connected to the internet is a different story. But everyone knows that you need milk. Yes, I know. I opened it. Um, so whether or not... <laughs> you, should, you see some stupid-ass shit. Anyway, so... so it, but he was the head of IoT at Cisco. So, yeah, of course, everyone knows that there is going to... Someone is going to win the Zapier for IoT market. The second I said, everyone's like, yeah, like... This isn't brilliant, but he's the head of IoT at Cisco. So the wow moment was, you're the head of IoT at Cisco. His wow moment, wow, you bootstrapped to $3.5 million selling primarily online with not terrible churn. Holy, how the fuck did you do that? Wow. Um, your wow can be a combination, right, of your expertise plus traction plus... For Limelight, my wow moment was, and I put it up front, and be like, problem, no one can, no one can attribute their offline marketing. Uh, TAM, it's 10% of global marketing budgets. Solution, Limelight, as trusted by, and then I put up 31 Fortune 500 logos. Wow. People are like, literally, I'm sitting in Sequoia, and they're like, how the fuck did you get 31 Fortune 500s? And I was like, they're like, wow, they didn't invest it. <laughs> wow, you needed 35. Yeah. Uh, they didn't like us at all. <laughs> but uh, So yeah, so the wow moment has to be an authentic thing. And at the end of the day, you know, there is, you know, some capital out there that's, that's not brilliant. But the bottom line is uh, raising is very, very, very hard. And, and wow needs to be something like relatively authentic. 
All right. And uh, yeah. hello, guys. Uh, thank you very much, Mike and, and Jonah. Uh, it's been extremely motivating, and, and I'm speaking for myself, but I, I can see as well the audience. So thanks very much for, for sharing your stories. I think that uh, one of the things that I saw in common, both of you were mentioning, is to know your audience when you're pitching or when you're trying to find those investors, right? Like we're not talking like huge investors that are like everywhere, the information, right? But how do you know exactly without making those mistakes or like pitching to, like creating that big funnel, how do you know exactly, okay, my idea or my industry is X, Y, Z, I know that these investors are gonna be the right ones to, to do and not to waste time. And other like, for example, sources like Crunchbase or, or, or other, how do you network and how do you find that information from, from investors that you'll see, you know that, okay, this is more likely for this investor to, to actually have my attention? You don't, uh, I, I, I don't, I just, just you, have, you don't. Yeah. Like, <laughs> You, you just have conversations and uh, you try to have conversations and you you get better as well. Like you you only learn as you do, right? You only learn as you, you grow and you move forward. So yeah, that's the answer. I've actually got a little bit of a hack because you know, Michael's right. How could you know, right? Like you're, you haven't done it before. So there's some hacks, right? So obviously, so example, Accelerprise is known for insure tech. Do you know why we're known for insure tech? because we had a massive acquisition for one of our insure tech companies, like a monster, return the fund. We actually don't know that much about insure tech. <laughs> it just turns out that one of our companies that got acquired happened to be an insure tech company, and now everyone's like, these guys are the insure tech wizards, go to them. <laughs> and people are like, tell me about insure tech. I'm like, it's like technology, but for insurance. Like, I don't know, I literally know not a fucking thing about insure tech. So, I mean, the bottom line is, you don't. So here's a quick hack for what you should do. Make a list of investors, the one you definitely don't care about. Talk to them first, because you're going to fuck it up. <laughs> that's, that's a Just like waste it best, be like, eh, that was a waste. True. You know, I literally tell my companies, I'll be like, this guy's, this guy's totally not for you. Pitch him hard. And learn. So just waste your bets. So what I see all the time is like, I got a meeting for Sequoia. I'm, gonna go meet. I'm like, no, 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 no. No, that's your 11th meeting. That's not your first meeting. Because you're going to get 10x better. So my hack is you don't. Now, are there some hacks and are there some leading indicators to let you know where you might be more successful? Sure. If, as an example, like Limelight's a MarTech platform, fun Funnelytics, everything's a funnel, is a MarTech platform. Um, so I picked companies that had great success, venture funds that had great success with MarTech. So I went to Mayfield and I met with the first ever board member of Marketo. And I met with the HubSpot investors, and I said, we are going to be the HubSpot of offline marketing. And they're like, get out of my office. No, so, I mean, so you do all those things. So there are some hacks. So look for partners that have invested in things that would let you believe that they've got some knowledge around the problem you're solving. Look for people that specifically talk about, about vertical focus. And then pick some generalists that you genuinely don't care about and make sure you get meetings. And then to answer the second part of your question around networking, 
So obviously, I mean, the first answer is, in general, um, VCs are infinitely more likely to take a meeting if they've got a warm intro. That is 100% of the time true. I meet a lot of people at events. Uh, I'm, I'm Canadian, so you know, I kind of talk to everybody. I will absolutely take those meetings and conversations and all of those things. If someone that I trust says this is a good founder, I am very much likely to take it from a 15-minute intro call to a 30-minute sit-down. And everyone's better sitting down, right? That's how we met, by the way, first time, is it was a warm intro. So it always works much better. Much better. So that's a LinkedIn and Plum Networks. And a VC's attitude basically is, just so you understand, and this is stated, it's very explicit. If you can't get to me from a warm intro, how the fuck are you going to build a company? Not wrong. Oh, very good advice there. All right, who else There's have a question? Thanks, gentlemen, for the uh, talk today. Here's a big question I have. Um, I'm in a bit of a different situation. I'm a pretty experienced entrepreneur, and I put millions into uh, my company. Uh, uh, the space I'm looking at is uh, total addressable markets, a billion dollars, two large companies in the US are in that space. Do Canadians have the vision to do this kind of thing, to invest? Because what I've seen is their vision is small uh, to invest in startups who have, like, if you look at Prodigy Math, uh, we're both in the ed tech space. They ra raised tons of family to grow their business, but they never got any institutional investors. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's what I said. There's, there's like, orders of magnitude less risk capital. Uh, it's not about vision. I mean, I, I've got, you know, I've, you know, Bruce Croxton is on my board. He's a very visionary guy. Um, but there is orders of magnitude less risk capitals. It's not that they don't see the vision. It's that they want to see a lot less risk before they're able to commit meaningful dollars. And my advice to anyone in that type of situation is U.S., sell the vision. I can say at Limelight, I get inbound investor interest on a very regular basis from U.S. funds. I introduce someone to a company in the U.S., uh, sorry, a U.S. investor to a Canadian company that wrote like a pretty significant check, like a $34 million U.S. I mean, they're willing to, Toronto's on the map. So uh, unfortunately, U.S. All right, um, anyone else? Okay, uh, you almost touched all, almost every point. My question to you is like, in the early stage, have you ever decided your pricing model? You just didn't discuss about the SaaS, it's all about like the pricing model. And like, did you change when you raised, like, you know, how does it work? And how you decided? <laughs> yeah. I'm the worst at this, by we the way. We are struggling right now. I'm so terrible. Like yeah, uh, pricing is tough. I'll be honest. Uh, pricing is something that you've got to tweak every and test and play with every, I would say, six months. I I play with my pricing about every six months. Uh, I there's no right answer he, again here. Like it's a, there is no right pricing model. Is is it is it going up? <laughs> like is are you making more money today than you were from your customers yesterday? Is your ARPU going up? Like. You know, uh, that's how I look at it, but it, it's, it's, that's a tough question. I mean, you, there is no real answer to pricing models. There is a guide that you should probably read uh, from Price Intelligently about pricing models. Um, 
a lot of it is surveying your customers, understanding like their tolerance, like who is your customer, right? So thinking about, well, for example, we have agencies as our customers. Freelancers is a, is a type of agency or not really, but you know, and then they grow to like bigger large scale agencies. So as you understand your core market, now you have to understand, well, what is their price tolerance? You got to look at comparables to some degree, uh, but never price based on your competitors. You got to price based on value. Yeah, pricing is a, it's an interesting game. Yeah, ProfitWell is another great resource for that. Yes, same I have company. nothing to add because I'm demonstrably bad at this. Yeah. It's tough. Pricing is tough. Yeah, it's and and with pricing, you have to think about also like it can be strategic too. So, um, I mean, I, I've gone through so many. I mean, in general, I always try to just keep on asking for more and like doubling it. And something I've done a lot is. Um, I mean, if you'll notice, I think over 80% of SaaS companies don't have their pricing on their website specifically because they, they want to talk to somebody and figure and negotiate it and figure out what their price is or what it can be. So, um, so, when, you, so when, when, when you've done it, let, let's say your, your product requires a sales call, and even if it doesn't, it's a good idea to do this so that you can learn a lot is to have that call, do the demo, sell them, and then ask them what they think when they say how much is this, and that means they're ready to buy, then you can ask them, like, well, I mean, because I, I remember at one point I was selling probably for $39 a month, and, and I asked somebody, like, they asked me how much it is, and I said, well, how much do you think it is? And they said, I mean, at least, like, $89 a month or something. I was like, yeah, you know, <laughs> like, so. You're, you're right on. <laughs> I can't like, believe you guessed. How did you do that? <laughs> so, you know, like, and, and now and now and now I sell Hubbly for for about f like five hundred dollars a month, right? So it's like you like you keep on doubling it and testing your market, and and so just to give you another thing, like I've I've done many different things where I've had many different pricing options. So so one thing I'll just say on on a on a sales note is that you know um, like we I I I wanted to because we're we're still bootstrapped and and I wanted to grow really quickly, I wanted to find the perfect, like the sweet spot that I could, that I knew I could close the deal. It was enough money that I had a really healthy business. Uh, so basically our ACV is $5,000 a year and I figured out how to close that transaction in one call and $5,000 cash like transacted in the call and and I couldn't do it before. I, I could, I got it to the point where I was, Getting subscriptions for like fifteen hundred dollars a month, but it was more demos, and I and I wanted to just bang out sales and show growth. So, but but I, I can still tell investors I, I can I can get this ACV up to twenty or thirty thousand dollars, and I've proven it. But I wanted to grow really quickly, so I just nailed it down to one price that I can close in one call. One thing, uh, well, before you jump, one one thing to also understand with pricing is is you have to understand the audience, right? The customer. So I'll give you a, a quick story. So I was, I also ran a marketing agency before I started my SaaS. And, um, I had a friend, she worked for a company doing about a hundred million dollars a year, uh, doing all sorts of billboards and that kind of stuff. And, and their customers were like fortune 100, fortune 500 type of companies. And because she was my friend and I was running my agency, She's like, Mikhail, like, we're, we need a new website, and I know you guys build websites, so like, put in, put in a, a bid. I was like, okay, fine. 
So I put in a bid and I put in $3,500. And she comes back to me, she's like, Mikkel, I need you to add another zero to this because I don't care how much it costs you, but if I present this to my boss, he'll think that we're buying a cheap website and our audience is like Fortune 100 companies. We need to feel like our website was $35,000. So I don't care how much it costs you. If it's gonna cost you less, that's great. You make the profit, but you need to put another zero. I did, she gave me the deal and I was like, okay, I now understand something about pricing. Understand your audience. Yeah, and the other thing is, as a Canadian startup, I'm pretty comfortable saying this, you're likely underpriced. Yeah. Probably dramatically. Because you're afraid of losing the deal, and you're Canadian. <laughs> so I challenge everyone on their next sales call, double the price, don't qualify it, don't say anything after, and just pause until they talk. 50% shot, you still get the deal. And if not, if they say something, just go back to your old price. It's free. <laughs> Literally, try it. I'm not like actionable, tactical. Do this. Accelerize, folks. <laughs> do this. Okay, so uh, so I think what we'll do is is wrap it up. That's been great. We'll turn the music back on. I think there might be some refreshments left, maybe. Um, and uh, so I just want to thank everybody for coming out uh, on a on a very cold uh, cold night. And um, and you know make sure that you you know you you join our community at Toronto SAS. Um, you can you know hashtag us Toronto SAS and join our. Um, we have a Slack group as well. Uh, join our meetup. You know join us everywhere. And um, and you know if you have any questions at any point, just feel free to reach out. Reach out to me anytime. And uh, yeah, so thanks and, and thank you guys. That was great. That was great.
awaken slowly from a dream. Rise up, rise up and rejoice and see the light revealed. This is your destiny mission, but first and thought and last indeed. So stop living the lie, this world ain't what it seems. I feel the basically systematically taken. I picture grown men shaking, cracking the whip, the bones breaking. Oh, cry, cause your father he hides it in the darkness of night. You better look to the sky. We need some spiritual wisdom. I like a broken man, he needs his drugs. Searching, always yearning, learning. I like a lover, she needs love. We've got to take the power back. To attack, but it's the sad fact that you can't act until you've made up your mind that you've had enough. Now the situation's critical, stuck in the middle of the hypocritical physical need a miracle. Hiding that we're dying inside, blind to this culture, be selling us lies.